The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, Documenta, our review of the big show in Germany and report on its anti-Semitism controversy. Plus, the copyright dispute about Andy Warhol's series of images of prints and a Juan Munoz drawing made in response to Joseph Conrad. Kabir Jalla and Jane Morris have been in Kassel, Germany to see the Quinquennial International Art Exhibition Documenta and witness the escalation of a long-running row over anti-Semitism and racism, which has resulted in an artwork being removed from the show. Virginia Rutledge, an art historian and lawyer, joins me to talk about the dispute over Andy Warhol's appropriation of a photograph by Lynn Goldsmith of the pop icon Prince. The case will be heard in the US Supreme Court this autumn and has potentially huge implications for artistic freedom. And this episode's work of the week is an outpost of progress, a 1992 drawing by the late Spanish artist Juan Munoz, inspired by Joseph Conrad's short story of the same name. Before all that, why not try a digital subscription to the art newspaper? The price for the first three months is £1, $1 or €1, depending on where you live, and then it's £10, $10 or €10 per quarter afterwards. You get full access to the website and the app for iOS and Android, plus the e-paper archive of the newspaper and Fair Dailies. Go to theartnewspaper.com, click subscribe, and the promo code is TRIAL, all in capital letters. Do also subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening now. Now, the latest edition of Documenta, the large-scale exhibition held in Kassel in Germany, opened to the public last week. It's curated by the Indonesian collective Roang Grupa and includes more than 1,500 artists, most of them part of other collectives. Documenta always draws international attention and debate, but this edition has been plagued by accusations of anti-Semitism and counter-accusations of Islamophobia and racist attacks against pro-Palestine artist groups. The row came to a head this week with the removal of a 2000 two work by the Indonesian collective Tarang Paddy due to its perceived anti-Semitic content, prompting widespread political commentary and condemnation. Our associate editor Kabir Jalla and editor-at-large Jane Morris went to Documenta last week and I spoke to them about the show and the political storm surrounding it. Jane, I'll start with you. You've been to several documentaries. Can you set the scene in terms of what is Documenta, what's its importance in the art world? It's a once every five years mega exhibition. I would say it's very curatorially led. It's much more separate usually, not always, usually from the art market than some of the other biennials, let's say Venice, for example. And yeah, I mean, it's a a bit of a sort of pinnacle of a curator's career, I think, to do this one. Yeah. And in terms of its influence, it's always struck me that Documenta has a slower burn than the sort of fireworks of a Venice Biennale, but tends to have a lingering effect on curatorial practices and artistic practices over a longer period. Well, the idea is supposed to be that it's very much either of the moment or even perhaps predicting the the kind of ideas and tenants to come, which is one of the reasons people look at it. It tends to be a very big exhibition. So the 2017 edition um, took place in Athens and Castle. It was absolutely enormous. I mean, for that one, I think I did six full days, no travel days, so three days on each exhibition. And I doubt if I saw half of it. Um, this year's doesn't actually feel as big It might be in square footage, I don't know, but it's much less dense for reasons I'm sure we'll come on to. So it felt actually a bit more manageable this year, but typically it's an exhibition that takes a very long time to get around. It's in big museums, it's also in underpasses, it can be in venues, you know, some miles outside. um, A big park. Yeah, it can be in a big park. Yeah, and it runs for 100 days and it's ticketed in such a way you can buy day tickets, but a lot of people buy a ticket that allows them multiple entries over the 100 days. Um, And I think a lot of people do actually do that. And I wouldn't be surprised if some curators see it and then go back again. Right. I don't want to dwell on the history too much, but I think it is important and instructive actually to talk about that last one that you were talking about, 2017. You went to that. And even then, there was a lot of talk about 
uh, almost anti-visual documenter. Um, and always that is a comparison with previous Venice Biennales or other Biennales indeed. There was a lot of archival material, a lot of text, right? Tell us about your experience with that one. Yeah, I mean, documenter can be very visual, I should say, very, you know, it can be very aesthetically pleasing. It can have a lot of big installations. The 2017 edition, I think, was very... With hindsight, I almost think it was very sort of literary and historical, if that makes sense. At one point, I walked around it and thought, this is put together by people who really like ideas, and I suspect they like poetry. They certainly like reading a lot, but they're not so concerned about how, you know, aesthetically attractive the work is. I mean, there was some actually quite beautiful work, but not much of it. I think in a way it's interesting. I do think these shows are very related, whether intentionally or not, because they do look at a lot of the same issues. I mean, that one was very much about the impact of neoliberalism, capitalism, colonialism. There was a lot about gender rights, the environment, that kind of thing. And there's a lot of that in this show too. But the feel is very different. So Kabir, tell us about this edition. So, yeah, this year was curated by Ruan Gruper, who are an Indonesian art collective that um, came up after the Suharto regime. And the sort of curatorial concept that they have gone with is one of Lumbung, which is Indonesian for rice barn. And basically, the concept is that rice is stored in surplus years in this barn, and it is then taken out for community good and community use in the sort of fallow years. And that sort of concept of community building, of communal good is essentially the curatorial thread that ties what is ultimately a very visually unappealing show. I don't just mean that in terms of the fact that there aren't, you know, all beautiful works, but rather it seems that the curators haven't been concerned with the idea of the image at all, because curation isn't necessarily grouping things together in terms of how things look, but really it's about social practices. It feels very almost, you know, old school, pre-Warburg old school in terms of the way that it's approaching the idea of aesthetics. That's really interesting. I mean, let's also say that this idea of social practice, that, that art as a social activity, is not a new one. No, not <laughs> it, you know, So this hasn't come out of the blue. But to a certain extent, does it feel like a kind of a, an extreme outcome of those kind of thoughts? Well, it is actually quite unusual for a big biennial to be curated by a collective. And I think the thing that we, we should say was they didn't curate the whole thing by any means. What Ruin Grouper actually did was put together a group of 14 other collectives representing different regions, different interests. And they then invited more people in some cases, not always. So this thing spread out like a, a spider's web or like the mycelium, you know, the, 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 the fungus spreading out its sort of communication networks. That is quite unusual, I would say. And I think I talked to one of the International Selection Committee members last year, uh, Charles Escher, who's the uh, director of the Van Abbe Museum. I should add, um, Francis Morris from the Tate is also one of the selectors this year. And he was talking about the fact that they were really interested in the idea of not having a single heroic curator figure to lead the whole exhibition. So I do think that is quite unusual. I mean, I, I think it could be you're perhaps being a bit harsh. I thought there were some actually quite beautiful bits, not that many, but there were some. Um, but I think that the sense here, I don't think I've ever seen it go quite as far as this. There were definite whiffs of the 70s and the 60s in many places around the Biennale. But, you know, some people may say that's all to the good. Kabir, can you give us an example of the kind of typical experience? Of course, you know, there were multiple different collectives and different artists involved. But can you give us a sort of flavour of the kind of thing that you might experience as you go around Documenta? So, I mean, I guess that's a bit of a difficult question because, as Jane said, there were some truly, truly beautiful works that you encountered. But I guess the most Documenta 15 area is this place called the Hubner Areal, which is in Castle's Industrial East, which has been activated for the first time in Documenta 15. It is a vast, vast form of factory building about half of the ground floor which is absolutely enormous is just basically a living room in which there are sofas and armchairs scattered around with you know tvs in which you are sort of i guess watching some collective practices there is also this um, collective called the jatuangi art factory based in indonesia in west java and um, a lot of their practice is based around clay they are housed in a former clay tile factory in indonesia 
essentially what they have done, it looks a bit like a science project in terms of the fact that there are just banners in which they are just showing you their practice, this is what they do, and then in another room there's sort of a potter's wheel in which you are invited to basically make your own clay sculptures. That to me is, you know, quintessentially the document of 15 that we were expecting. There are a lot of these hangout spaces and you hear this word nongrong around a lot, which I believe is Indonesian for hanging out. There are a lot of hanging out spaces, there are a lot of evidence of different collectives coming together and having hung out in these spaces or having hung out beforehand I gather a lot of the time they had to do it on zoom collectives were grouped by time zone so there's been a lot of that going on there's a lot of evidence of that going on we're also encouraged to do it there is the most extensive program of events that I've ever seen as a documenter every day all the way through the hundred days there will be four or five events including the chance to go and hang out in these spaces and debate issues there's a kind of party space in one of the buildings which I think you went to Kabir so there's all kinds of different ways that you can connect to people but connecting to people is definitely encouraged at this one. Kabir can you tell us if there's any sense of Rangrupa's role as the kind of leader of the whole thing or does it feel very dispersed in terms of the authorship of the actual whole event? I suppose the philosophy of Lumbung definitely has permeated the entire exhibition and all the artists, all the participating artists that were involved, they definitely spoke about how much they admired Rungrupa's politics, how much they stood behind them in terms of, you know, a lot of the difficulties that this exhibition has faced. But no, there isn't that sense of a curatorial stamp there, especially because, as James pertained to, a lot of the works were created, you know, a decade or two before the exhibition even opened. This wasn't a curator giving a sort of curatorial prompt and then having responses to it. It's really rather about them sort of honouring a wide legacy of collectives that have come before them that are existing now. So let's talk about the issue which has just exploded actually over the last couple of days. There has been a run-up to it, let's be clear, but also this has really gone to another level of controversy over the last few days. Jane, tell us about it. Well, I mean, as you said, it actually started back in January where an organisation called Alliance Against Antisemitism Castle accused two members of one of the arts collectives and two members of the international jury of having um, connections to the BDS, Boycott, Divest, Sanctions Movement against Israel. Now, very quickly, Documenter and Ruin Grouper push back on that. And the evidence does seem slim on what we can work out from it. Nevertheless, this story got picked up, Desite picked it up, and that's a journal of record. And so there's been this kind of running thing that this documenter is quite pro-Palestinian. And I think that that has really sensitised particularly the German press. Should say the coverage outside Germany has been varied, actually. And there are people in the art world who feel that this is actually a, a form of racism against Ruan Grupper and that it's a, a lack of understanding of the position that many of the artists and collectives from the global south come from. Yeah, and this all kind of came to a flashpoint last month when the premises of Questions of Funding, which is a Palestinian artist group who were one of the people accused of supporting BDS, their exhibition premises were vandalised. Um, they had a brick thrown through the window and then spray-painted were the words 187, which Ruan Grupa and the documentary artistic team took to mean in the Californian penal code basically is a code for murder, and then Peralta, which they assume is um, Isabella Peralta, who is a very prolific Spanish right-wing figure. And so that was really the first point at which things became very serious for the safety of the exhibiting artists. There were numerous sort of workshops and groups in which artists sort of got together and thought about how they could protect themselves. A very large part of the conversation was also how not to replicate the police state because obviously a lot of these artists are very anti-police and yet they are now requiring Castle to provide extra police and there was increased security all throughout the exhibition. You noticed it at the late night events, there was a huge amount of bag searching, police with guns and everything were present. And I was a bit mystified when I read about this on, you know, how, how had somebody got in? But actually, when I saw the venue, the venue is quite a sort of tumbled down rough industrial space. So I could see that actually, you probably wouldn't have to be that sophisticated to be able to break in. So that's the background to the kind of events which have happened this week. Kabir, tell us what's happened this week. 
So this week, a 60-foot banner work by an Indonesian collective called Terang Padi, who are widely seen as sort of precursors to Ruang Grupa because they came up before the Suwati regime, or rather during it, and Ruang Grupa came up after, has been accused of containing anti-Semitic imagery. It was first reported in Monopole, which I should mention are a magazine that were until now one of the few in Germany, German-speaking publications that were actually very pro-documenta and pro-Ruang Grupa, and they have come out basically saying that parts of the banner are anti-Semitic. They basically contain what people are perceiving to be a caricature of a Jew and also anti-Mossad imagery. And then the German culture minister, Claudia Roth, has also come out saying that this is explicitly anti-Semitic. Previously, Claudia Roth also was quite pro-documenta and came out in defence of artistic licence. So you're seeing a lot of the sort of pro-documenta camp now also turning onto the other side, which really means that this argument is sort of losing ground. Jane, can you give us a sense of the scale of this banner? Because that's important, isn't it? You know, Monopole have done some quite good investigative work here because they've actually spent a lot of time looking at it and found these figures effectively. I saw the banner. I think Kabir saw the banner. We didn't see the problem areas. The banner's absolutely massive, but there's also masses and masses and masses of placards on sticks all around it. They've also gone to the Hullenbad Ost, and again, the whole thing is covered with banners and um, placards that you can carry. And their aesthetic is very sort of satirical and crude and a bit cruel and a bit funny and a bit childish. Humour was supposed to be part of this documentary, and in fact, there are some sort of more light-hearted areas than you would imagine, given what we've said about colonialism mm. and the like. So you tended just to see it as this big mass of stuff. And the most visible characters in it, I would say, looked as if they were supposed to be representing the Suharto dictatorship. So I think most people looking at it thought it was about the Suharto dictatorship, but also their whole thing was that they wanted everyone who was oppressed everywhere to join together. Now, obviously, this has turned out to be a big problem. The work was made in 2002. It was shown in Australia. Nobody seemed to notice anything in 2002. But people are obviously looking much more closely now, particularly in the light of the the earlier debates. So first it was covered up and now I believe it's been taken away. Yes, the entire thing has now been taken down and there were large protests yesterday in which people were actually holding up parts of the artwork as placards in protest against the censorship. Right. So people have been protesting in favour of the artists, that's what you're saying. I think one of the problems we've got here is that in all the cases, I do think Documenta has been a bit slow to come up with a position and talk to the media. The artists did issue a statement, didn't they? But it was a bit of a vague and bland statement. And I think really, given the nature of the imagery, it would have been better if they had either defended it and explained what they did mean by it, because they're saying it's been misunderstood and taken out of context. Either they need to explain what they did mean by it, or they need to just basically apologise straight away. I mean, I think that, you know, just purely based on the images that are in the press, I've not seen it, I've not been to Documenta. I've looked at an image and it does look like a Hasidic Jew with an SS insignia and so consistent with anti-Jewish caricatures from right across history. And therefore, I find it troubling. I can see why anybody could come to the conclusion that this is an anti-Semitic image. Mm. So, Jane, what have the artists said? So they issued a statement, and this is the gist of it. Um, They basically said the banner is a campaign against the militarism and violence that they experienced during the years of the military dictatorship of Suharto, which ran for 32 years, and that the legacy of it exists today. And they say the depiction of the military figures in the banner express their experiences. So, for example, corrupt bureaucracy, military generals and their soldiers, which are symbolised by pigs, dogs and rats, to criticise the exploitative capitalist system and military violence. And then later on in the statement, it's the first presentation of the banner in a European and German context. It is not meant to be related in any way to anti-Semitism. And we are saddened that details in this banner are understood differently from its original purpose. I mean, I think this has been a, a kind of running theme through this whole set of problems, though, isn't it? Which is the curators and the many of the artists probably aren't very familiar with the German context. They may not be as familiar with the sensitivities. And this sort of relates to the fact that it looks like a lot of the works weren't scrutinised before they were placed in Castle. 
and that's one of the most important aspects, isn't it, Kabir? Because it seems to me that the people that run Documenta, not run Grupa, but the people at the top of the organisation that is Documenta, have not seemed to have any oversight over it. That's absolutely correct. I think the most telling statement, more telling than Tarang Paddy's, was the first statement that um, Documenta's Director General, Sabine Shawman, put out on Monday before her sort of more carefully worded statement today, which was basically entirely distancing Documenta from this work and saying we had no authority over you know its placement over what it says and you know we had no sort of control over it and that to me rings very weirdly for the head of an enormous exhibition surely that decision should flow directly through you if you are the head of documenta and so I think that's really really telling about the sort of level of control that documenta and also Ruan Grupa have had because ultimately when you have this very free form organizational you know sort of exhibition this is what happens one collective invited about a hundred artists just you know on a whim and i spoke to one of the uh, members of the artistic team and they said something very very interesting which is that we don't think the lumbung spirit has been extended to the actual laborers of the artistic team you know it does end somewhere you know, these hundred artists, they needed emergency visas. This is replacing wall measurements and wall hangings and stuff. It's like that real nitty gritty labor that people don't think about. And um, Jane, I think you said something really interesting when we were at the show, which is something that Cecilia Alemani told you that a Organising a biennial is about 80% logistics. And this is what, you know, artists, dare I say, don't often think about when they decide to invite 100 other artists to an exhibition. I mean, Jane, that is really crucial, isn't it? Because if you're going to mess with the form of a big biennale, to take it into new areas, to involve collectives, to reflect a big shift in artistic practice to a certain degree, it does come with all sorts of other aspects that make it a very complex process, actually. Yeah, I mean, I think people would have probably expected more that you know things weren't finished and in fact there was a a degree of that there were installations not finished and the like I mean in general I was quite impressed by how much they had got done but I think they probably were thinking logistically more in that way perhaps less than the content which just goes to show that content can definitely sort of come and haunt you. I don't want to dwell on just this one issue because there is a lot more to say about Documenta. But one of the things that seems clear to me is that this issue is going to continue to rumble along until the collective Tarang Pade actually literally address the meaning of that particular image. I don't know what you think, Kabir. It seems to me that they still haven't explained what we're looking at in that image, which is, to most eyes, deeply offensive. I totally agree with you, but it's ultimately also going to be who is going to force them to do that. In lieu of Documenta's strong hand, it's going to have to come from the collective. And then obviously that's the issue with collectives because it's not just one person who decides it. Some people might want to speak up about this and other people might not within the collective. And ultimately it has to come to one of these collective decisions. And I think that's, again, something that you know is so alien to the idea of a Western biennial where you can at least hold an artist like Dennis Schutz to account, right? How do you hold an entire collective to account? Who is to say who from Tarang Paddy was responsible for this in the first place? Kabir, obviously, if we're talking about political issues, social issues, it's really important that the thesis of the exhibition must incorporate sustainability, the environment, etc. Did that manifest in an impressive way in the show? Absolutely. I think that's probably one of the strongest points of this documentary is that a lot of the artwork that is about the ecological crisis is actually situated in nature and it is by artists or rather collectives that come from areas which are going to be the most affected by climate change, by sea level rise. So this actually really manifests its best in Fulda, this area in the south in the Karlsauer Park. For example, there is this absolutely stunning work by an Argentinian slash transnational collective called La Intermundial Holobiente, which is a sort of large translucent banner partially held up by balloons, sort of next to a compost heap in the middle of a clearing of trees. And you have to walk about 20 minutes to even get to it. So by the time that you get there, you always want a special experience. And it's a large translucent barrier that sort of depicts the trees that are then directly behind there and as the light sort of perforates from the sun you sort of get a very you know like lovely interplay between the sort of theater in the sky as they call it and the trees behind you and then in a sort of log cabin they have a book that is basically um they're creating an archive around the forests that they're then also sort of charting you know the destruction and the creation of so i think that was a really beautiful work that you could sit with for a long time you also had a colombian collective called mass arte mass action and it's an enormous enormous stack of 
um, chopped logs and from there is playing sort of the sounds of the forest as heard by a wood beetle. And because it's situated within nature, as opposed to being in a white cube or, you know, in a factory, you do get this interplay between the sounds of the park and then the sounds of nature itself. And, you know, at one point there is, in the recording, there's thunder and rain. And I looked up, you know, so quickly as to think you know, is it raining outside for me? And I think those sorts of interplays have been done really, really well. Right. Yeah, I thought the African collective that had also done the piece all about um, secondhand clothes and waste, which was also placed in the same park. So it looks really very striking. I mean, a building has been created out of, um, it looks like um, blankets and mattresses. But inside, they're actually talking about the lack of dignity in wearing secondhand clothes and wearing clothes that sometimes have people's names embroidered in them, which was a bit of an upending of, you know, our current enthusiasm for recycling, which I thought was an interesting take. And it was, um, again, I thought the way it was situated in the park was very successful. Was there any physical manifestation of Rangrupa's work in the show? So I saw a Rowan Grouper once um, around the back of a building having some coffee. The actual artwork I saw, it was called Composting Knowledge. It was in Hafestrasse in this very, very large venue on the top floor. And it is basically just heaps of compost and talking about how they're sort of gathering knowledge and building it as if it is compost. It was a big eye roll moment, if I'm going to be honest. <laughs> So where was that? It was at the very, very top of Harvestrasse. I Harvest went Strasse. to the top. Where? where oh. Did you follow the smells of cooking up to no, the very top floor? I missed that. I missed that. God, how did I miss that? <laughs> you see, this is the thing. I mean, another thing that one should always say about this, you mentioned earlier on, Jane, that, you know, in some ways there's an encouragement with documenters to, to revisit and revisit. There's so much to miss in these things. But did it hang together, you know, as an art show, as something to ponder, as, as, as a kind of coherent vision? Did it hang together as a, as a good Biennale should? Yeah, I think it did, actually. I think because the collectives do have a lot of things in common, and that was very obvious. And I talked to a few of them, and many of them said the thing they'd actually enjoyed the most was meeting all the other collectives and this sort of growing form of solidarity but yeah I mean and you do see similarities in the work as as well as all these hangout spaces there are an awful lot of banners there are a lot of documentation videos tend to be more documentary rather than artistic there's a lot of I suppose keeping the history of activism and collectives alive a lot of looking back to the past as well as forward I mean Ruin Group has said they had a sort of set of words that they wanted people to think about, which were humour, independence, locally anchored, generosity, sufficiency, transparency and regeneration. And I think that did run fairly consistently through all the pieces I saw. I mean, as we were just sort of discussing, I think we, we've both missed stuff and we, and we were there for quite a long time and we've both missed stuff. Yeah. Kabir. No, I absolutely agree. I think that idea of curating not through image but through social practice really did lend itself to a very cohesive mm. biennial in terms of the fact that you also just get a sense of palpable joy from both the collectives that were there and a lot of them were just present, you know, with the artworks, but also people were just enjoying themselves far more so than I've seen at other Biennales. And they were just, you know, I encountered people sleeping on the artworks, you know, genuinely just having a good time. There were a lot of children. It was a very, very children-friendly biennial, which I think we should mention. There were some uh, adults and also some children skateboarding in the documenta Halle. I mean, as I say, it was a lot of the same issues as 2017. It was definitely more fun, I would say. Um, I didn't find it as intellectually dense and stimulating as the 2017 one, but it's definitely got some energy to it, hasn't it? It's got some energy and life to it. Right. And so, as I said before, you tend to have a kind of lingering effect of documenta. Do you think that's going to happen this time around? Yeah, something that I've definitely noticed that I think will be a big takeaway from this documentary that was started in Documenta 14 but has really come to a head now is the total disintegration of what art and politics are. And I think it's gone both ways insofar as that you've seen obviously the politicians have an enormous say and, you know, control the dialogue of what's happened with Documenta. But Conversely, at the other end, you're now seeing art basically take the space of the state. You know, in 
in the space of the failed sort of welfare state, you are seeing these collectives emerge and basically provide things like spaces to rest, spaces to discuss. And I think it's really important to consider, you know, why a lot of these collectives even came to exist in the first place. You know, Varun Grupa, British Arts Trust from Dhaka, these all came from a total lack of infrastructure. And I think being very pessimistic now, we are sort of seeing the decline of most healthy welfare states and this idea that we now need to sort of group together once again and, you know, think collectively think in terms of lumbung and you know communal resources and so that question of where does art and social practice differ it's getting more and more murky by the day right that's really interesting i'm interested also in you know you talking about the idea of art replacing the state inevitably because of what's happened over the past few days this enormous political storm one wonders what state intervention in documenta will be from now on. Jane, I'm conscious that there's a sense in which the politicians seem to be sort of slapping their fists down and saying, no more. You know, documenta's had a pretty free reign to do what it wanted to do. It's been an extraordinary space for liberal discussion, for free speech. But there's something slightly intimidating from my point of view about seeing so many politicians expressing their views about it now. I mean, I don't read German, unfortunately, so I could only talk to my German-speaking friends who know curators and uh, people in the market and the like, but curators mostly on this one. And there is some concern that some politicians were already questioning why so much money was being spent on an art exhibition in the middle of Germany and that this may increase calls for either more control over Documenta or less spending on it. It is interesting. I don't think I do want a bunch of art collectives to take over the welfare state. I have to be honest. I lived in a co-op and a collective when I was younger, so I have a particular view on this. (laughs) Um, But I think it will prove influential. I think there's such a big divide at the moment between what's going on in the art market and what's going on in the curatorial world. And I think to see art that is really at heart about trying to make the world a better place and not about... Uh, money and fame and success is an important thing to see. I mean, having said that, there's always been plurality in the art world and these things do tend to go in cycles in my view there were definitely moments as I walked around thinking I wonder bit as we saw in Venice actually are we going to start seeing work that is more interior that is more poetic that is more aesthetically pleasing starting to reappear again who knows It's always very fascinating. Kabir and Jane, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. You can read Kabir's report from Documenta at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for Android or iOS, which you can get from Google Play or the App Store. Coming up, we hear about a landmark copyright case involving Warhol's depictions of prints, and we discuss Juan Munoz's drawings responding to Joseph Conrad. But first, here's this week's news bulletin. London's National Gallery is to mark the anniversary of its establishment in 1824 with a blockbuster exhibition on Van Gogh. The show will focus on the artist's period in Provence, where he produced his greatest work. Although exhibitions are rarely announced so far in advance, it's scheduled to run from September 2024 until January 2025. There will be at least 50 works, mainly paintings, along with some drawings. The exhibition is provisionally entitled Van Gogh, Poets and Lovers. A British art dealer is facing extradition to the US for allegedly supplying forged documents to Inigo Philbrick, who duped investors out of £68 million and was sentenced to seven years in prison last month. Robert Newland is charged with providing false documents to help Philbrick perpetrate a Ponzi-like scheme on collectors, which involved Philbrick defrauding clients by selling the same works of art to multiple investors and using the works as collateral on loans. Newland reportedly met Philbrick around 2010 at London's White Cube Gallery, where Newland worked in the finance department. He was named as a suspect in February when New York's Southern District Court unsealed an indictment against him. At the time, Newland was the head of sales for the Miami-based art and tech gallery Superblue. A full hearing is scheduled for November. 
five indigenous tribes have entered a historic agreement with the US government to manage the Bears Ears National Monument, the two million acre site in Utah that holds a rich concentration of ancient indigenous artefacts, dwellings, petroglyphs and pictographs. The region was granted protection in 2016 by the then President Barack Obama, but the Trump administration slashed the boundaries of the monument by 85% to open the site to uranium mining and other resource extraction in 2017, leading the World Monuments Fund to list it as an endangered site. That decision was overturned by the Biden administration in October last year. The purpose of the new agreement is to ensure that the tribes have a voice in any decisions made by the Bureau of Land Management and the US Forest Service, such as resource protection, access and programme development. You can read more about all these stories on the website and the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This summer, Christie's celebrates art from antiquity to the 21st century with Classic Week, presented across six live auctions in London and four online sales. View history anew this season as extraordinary art and objects go under the hammer, including Lucas Cranach the Elders, The Nymph of the Spring, a neoclassical masterpiece by Antonio Canova, an Egyptian limestone group statue once presented as a gift to King George III, Bob Dylan's 2021 studio recording of Blowing in the Wind in a one-of-one ion original disc, Napoleon's manuscript of the Battle of Austerlitz and a selection of prints by Dürer and Rembrandt. Christie's Classic Week sales run from today 24th of June to 19th of July with viewing starting from the 2nd of July at 8 King Street in St James's London. Discover all this and more at christies.com. Welcome back. Now, this autumn, the US Supreme Court will consider a copyright dispute that has far-reaching implications for the freedom of artists and other creative people to use existing material in their work. The dispute is between the Andy Warhol Foundation for the Visual Arts, which holds copyrights in art created by Andy Warhol, and Lynn Goldsmith, a photographer known for her portraits of celebrities. It was triggered by Goldsmith's objection to Warhol's use of her photograph of the pop icon Prince as a source for his 1984 silkscreen print series. Goldsmith stated that her her rights in her image had been infringed. The Warhol Foundation responded by stating that Warhol's use was transformative and a New York district court found in favour of the foundation. But then the Second Circuit Appeals Court came up with an unprecedented rule that it applied to find that Warhol's works are infringing. Last week, amicus briefs in support of the Warhol Foundation's case were submitted to the Supreme Court. I spoke to Virginia Rutledge, an art historian and lawyer who co-authored the amicus brief in the high-profile case involving the photographer Patrick Carew and the artist Richard Prince in 2013 about the Warhol Prince dispute and what it could mean for artists' freedom in the future. Virginia, what are the basics of this case? Well, at its foundation, this case is about the ability of successive generations of artists and authors to speak. Although it's been discussed primarily as a copyright law case, I think the First Amendment issues are really paramount here particularly for the U.S. audience. Right. So fundamentally, there is a photograph of Prince by Lynn Goldsmith that was used by Andy Warhol as a basis for a series of works of art. And that is, in most cases, a fairly straightforward example of the kind of ways that artists have used photography and up until now, legally has been reasonably straightforward. Is that right? I think so, yes. Lynn Goldsmith's photograph, which was a black and white portrait of the rock star Prince, now lamentably gone, um, is an example of the kind of excellent work that finds its way out into the culture and then should be available under U.S. law for other artists to rework and reuse um, for their own new artworks. Right. But what's different then about this case? What's happened? I mean, one place to start is to notice how long this case has been going on. Um, Lynn Goldsmith first realized that her photograph had been used by Warhol as the source for his own series of prints portraits back in 2016. And that is when she decided that she felt uh, her work had been infringed and that she should be compensated for Warhol's use of the picture. I think what's changed in a very large sense is the ability, which is a good thing, for all of us to be more aware of works that are made and circulated in the world. At the same time, of course, that there are greater abilities to seek out compensation for those uses. 
So the question, and of course, this is all enabled by means of technological distribution. And again, I think that's a good thing. But what we're looking to find is the balance between a first artist and a second artist can work with materials to create new things. Now, what's different about this case is that there's been this intervention of the second circuit. So tell us what the second circuit is and what they ruled. The second circuit is one of the two most important courts that hear federal copyright law cases in the United States. The other is the ninth circuit in California. What the second circuit ruled is there is a new test that should be applied when looking at questions of infringement involving visual art. The second circuit suggested that it was not enough to see a new meaning or message, which is the standard set by the Supreme Court in 1994, but that instead, when there were two works, when a follow-on work looks too much like a previous work, in other words, when you can recognize the source material in some way, then the work is infringing. And that is the ruling of the Second Circuit that is so troubling to so many people because it puts into question the legitimacy from a legal perspective of generations of artists working in modes that use source material. And when you look at the history of not just Western art, but a history of any art that includes popular culture, popular media, you can see the problems right away. Absolutely. Can you say how settled the law was on this question. I mean, you know, we've heard a lot about settled law in relation to Roe v. Wade recently, of course. How settled was the law in relation to this question? On the one hand, the copyright law itself is codified, it's set in statute, but its application is settled through the interpretation of case law in many instances. And here, while there have been a number of cases involving appropriative strategies in modern and contemporary art, the most recent and arguably the most important of these was left settled only by private agreement as to the final question. And I'm referring to the case Carrie v. Prince in 2013, which ended, some would say, with a very open question as to whether Richard Prince's use of Patrick Carrie's photograph was a fair use across the series that he made. So the position of this case is extremely important within the visual arts context, but more broadly, because the copyright law really is written for all forms of creative expression. That's why, in part, the Warhol Foundation was successful petitioning the Supreme Court to hear this case, because at the moment, we have two conflicting, very important circuit courts in the United States holding forth different rules for deciding when a follow-on work is infringing, the Second Circuit and the Ninth Circuit. What seems interesting to me is that the Second Circuit agreed that the use had been transformative in that it was recognisably a different image, but again, from a non-legal perspective, from somebody who isn't involved in hearing these cases, it seems like the Second Circuit effectively washed its hands of making a decision here. Is that a correct assumption or is that rather too simplistic? Well, the Second Circuit did two things. They both decided that the works were infringing too close to the original, but somewhat perversely, if I may say so, they said it wasn't really possible for them to look and discern a new meaning or message, even though they effectively conceded it, in a case where the works look visually similar. If you're thinking, gosh, this sounds circular, well, it is. And the point that you made there about this being something which has actually lasted throughout the history of Western art is really pertinent, in fact, to the amicus briefs that have been submitted to the court, isn't it? Because there's actually this really wonderful kind of art historical lesson in these briefs, right? You're right. One could get a really excellent introduction to the history of modern art in particular through the amicus briefs that have been filed in this case. And what that history shows is a practice among artists of looking to the past and being inspired by works of the past in order to create new works in many cases. 
Just think, for example, of the very well-known Manet painting, Déjeuner sur l'herbe. Well, it turns out that there is a very long pedigree, if you will, of numerous images that use that same motif. That long-understood tradition of artistic borrowing and quoting and homage is actually part of the problem, I think, that we are seeing here. We are uncertain, many of us, where to place credit in a situation where a visual artwork looks so much like the previous one. And of course, that's the point of some, but not all of this work, to question the very nature of how it comes to be that we assign value to works and statements, and how things can mean differently at different moments in time. And our ability to be able to express those new meanings and our ability to stand up and say that we are part of a community that can see those new meanings is really at the heart of this current case. Absolutely. And you made the point about value there. And it seems to me that's a really massive thing here, because one of the things that seems to be recurrent in this field is that you might have a photographic image, which was taken perhaps as a commercial image, and then you have an artist who's using it, and they're part of this massive bubble of huge prices being widely reported. And the source photographer sees this and thinks, well, why aren't I a part of that? Is that fair? I don't think that's coincidental at all. I think we can look to past decades and see that for quite a time, the please see the air quotes here, fine art market was held apart from the photography market. And where there is overlap now and a greater understanding that there is no hierarchy um, between photography and other art forms that's recognized by the law or really recognized by our museums the supposed arbiters and certainly the stewards of what we value as visual culture in an art context. I think it's a red herring to make this case be about whether photography is lesser than a screen print such as Warhol's. That's not a pertinent question. But it is no accident that the business methods that are more common in the photography industry than in the again, air quotes, fine art industry, are different. Indeed they are. Photography has a long history of licensing, for example. And interestingly, there is beginning to be massive overlap in that business area as well with fine arts imagery. Andy Warhol Foundation being one of the premier examples of how to do licensing well. I'm interested in the role of the amicus briefs, because, again, people listening to this may not know what they are. But as we said, there's very detailed art historical stuff in here. There's all sorts of um, very detailed arguments about copyright law, the history of copyright law and so on. What effect do these have and what sort of material do you need in an amicus brief to really hit home, as it were? Well, amicus briefs are intended to aid the court by putting forth perspectives and the interests of other parties who might not be part of the litigation, but who would be affected by the outcome of any decision. So it's significant that in addition to briefs from copyright law professors and art law professors, we also have briefs from art museums, art foundations, the American Art Museum Directors Association, the College Art Association, and I think most significantly, the participation of artists themselves who understand that If this case ends with a rejection of previous Supreme Court precedent regarding fair use, art studios, art universities, the entire current course of contemporary art will be changed. Can you say in what ways it will be changed? Do you think, for instance, there would be retrospective action taken by certain people? Will it just plunge it into a kind of legal mire? Or are you just talking about the very fact of considering the world of imagery, as it were, as an open source for artists? I think all of the above. I mean, we will very quickly see that there will be concern about whether works that use appropriative strategies can be safely exhibited in our museums. This will certainly have an impact on the marketplace that will go far beyond the borders of the United States. It could even impact the ability of 
educational institutions to show works that previously were considered significant to understanding what's happening in art history and the subjects that current art takes on. And I think it's a sea change and not in a good way for the way that creatives think. As a practical matter, all of us see and take in so much information on a daily basis to start to think about the creative process from the point of view of a blank slate that then might need to be filled with licensed materials, I think is not intuitively something a creative person expects. And it's certainly not the way that the very long history of visual culture and other culture in our modern world has been made. And again, those artistic urges, they cross generations and centuries going back in time to work with previous material. That's right. I wanted to ask you, because you were involved in writing amicus briefs for the Carrie Richard Prince case. Can you say something about what happened in that case? Because it is significant, isn't it, that it was settled out of court and one might have expected that to happen again in this instance? Yes, it's been a little less than a decade since that case ended with a settlement between the parties. And although we were left with a Second Circuit ruling that established clearly that most of the works in the Prince series, which reworked in many different ways, adding collage elements and recombining images with, you know, not just Patrick Carew, but many others as well, to create new works. The court nevertheless held back and said that for a group of five, it just wasn't sure that enough changes, essentially, visually, had been made to count as fair use. And rather than get to a place where we had clarity on that, because of the private settlement, we were left with that as an open question. This is an area where uncertainty is really not productive. And it makes me think about the very many instances that I've known of this in my sort of art historical lifetime and and things like there was an instance where Glenn Brown, the painter, made an image which was based on a, an image by a sci-fi illustrator. One of the things that occurs to me is very often because of the atmosphere around the use of imagery which has been going on for so long, artists won't seek the permission of the person that made the original image. Would you advise that if an artist were to come to you and say, I'd like to use this image, do you think I ought to contact the person who made the original source? Um, What would you advise them to do? You know, it's a tough one for several reasons, and I'm going to speak very candidly about it. You've probably heard the phrase, it's better to uh, ask forgiveness you know, later. I don't think that's a particularly healthy way for a culture to move ahead. What I would advise artists is to be sure that they are clear about what it is that they want to say and proceed with confidence. And what I would hope is that with more and more examples of that behavior in the open, I mean, notice Warhol certainly made no attempt to hide his print series or any of the others that came before. What I would advise any artist is to do what they do. Artists need to be able to speak. We want as a culture for that to happen We want our law to protect the ability of artists to speak. We should all be in the business of deciding what matters to us, and I think that should be an inclusive decision. I want to hear what others have to say, even if I disagree with it. What we don't want is to create a situation in which artists second-guess themselves before they're even out of the studio. It's important also that we recognize that we're not looking to cut any artist out of the economic benefit of their own work. We are still just looking at the place where it makes sense to say, this is somebody else's, this is something new. Perhaps if we had a more robust system of attribution, uh, that would help the situation. Oftentimes, artists are really as interested in being credited, not all the time, But I think that's one of the problems that we're having with cases like this when they come up is, although it's a very real artistic tradition that knows all of the references to Manet's Déjeuner sur la for example, that's not always the case. And I don't think it should be necessary to know the source of a particular image in order for something new to be made of it. 
I celebrate Lynn Goldsmith's ability to challenge the use of her work, but I, for one, feel that what is needed here is a reaffirmation of the Supreme Court precedent set back in 1994, which puts the test squarely on the perception of a new meaning or message. Those are the values that serve the core fundamental interest in speech and creativity in the end. And when will we know? When does this case reach its conclusion, as it were? Well, the next step is that we'll hear from Lynn Goldsmith. The Andy Warhol Foundation will have a chance to reply. We'll see some more amicus briefs along the way in support of Goldsmith. And then currently scheduled October 12th, the Supreme Court will hear the case. And some period of time after that, we'll have a decision. Well, Virginia, thank you so much for taking us through this case and this whole thorny issue in such a clear way. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking with you, Ben. Thank you. You can read Virginia Rutledge's article on the Warhol Prince case on the website or the app. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. This weekend, the Centro Botín in Santander, Spain, opens Juan Muñoz Drawings 1982-2000, an exhibition of 200 works reflecting this important aspect of the late Spanish artist's practice. Among the works is an outpost of Progress, a 1992 drawing inspired by Joseph Conrad's short story that was a precursor to his best-known novel, The Heart of Darkness. I spoke to Dieter Schwarz, the curator of the exhibition, about the work. Dieter, the drawing that we're going to talk about was made in 1992. At what stage in his career was Juan Munoz at that time? He was uh, had become a mature artist. He had started in the early 80s and had uh, got himself very well known internationally already in the early 90s. We are in his full career, in his blooming career, when, we, when he did this drawing. Right. And he was primarily known right the way through his career, really, as a sculptor. But... Drawing was always more than just a form of sketching or a form of preparatory work for the sculpture, wasn't it? It was an essential part of his practice. Yeah, well, the question was, is for me, what is a typical Juan Munoz drawing? There are no studies in a, in a proper sense, no studies for sculptures. He never did it. He did the sculpture autonomously and he did drawing also for itself. But he did drawing constantly. As, as at least his friends tell us that and his family tells me there are his notebooks, his drawing books where there's just a flow of drawings and they have this, uh, a certain handwriting which you can recognize as Juan Munoz on the other hand he did the drawing on very much on purpose in very different styles for rooms because we shouldn't forget that Juan's intention was to create rooms not sculptures by themselves but situations where you enter and you are fully emerged in a situation and these drawings which he did in part at least the so-called raincoat drawings, large drawings on black fabric, etc. They were created to do rooms and not to do like notebook drawings. So they were really his uh, public appearance of the drawings. The work that we're going to talk about relates very closely to this idea, which is expressed through those environments, of him as a storyteller. He wanted to create entire worlds, right? Yes, yes. He's, he considered himself a storyteller, but a very special storyteller because the narrative always breaks up. It's almost started and then it's already over. So we're in a situation with question marks. Where are we really? What is he going to tell us? What has he told us, in fact? He was very playful in that sense, wasn't he? In in the way that he played with us as a viewer in terms of our interpretation of the work, our response to the very particular conditions that he created. Yeah, well, he liked acting, he liked card player tricks, he liked all kinds of illusions. And the work is about creating illusions. It's not about reality per se, it's about creating something where you find yourself in all of a sudden. And this particular work, tell us about this. It's called Outpost of Progress. Well, I chose this because it shows various aspects of his work. Uh, He was very passionate of literature. He didn't have a a proper education, but then as an artist, he read a lot and he was fascinated by 19th century literature. And so it came about that the Belgian artist book publisher, Yves Gewart, proposed to him a Joseph Conrad novel and to, to do illustrations for this novel. And this novel is the outpost of progress, a very special novel coming from the Tales of Unrest Joseph Conrad wrote at the end of the 19th century. And if I just give an outline, it's about two Belgian explorers who go to the darkest Africa, to the Congo, and on a trading post. And they are like the 
the ambassadors of progress, of enlightenment of, of, of the European world. And they're there, spend some months, and it doesn't go well. Tensions are created between the two of them. About the small piece of sugar, they have a terrible fight. One shoots the other, and as the steamboat who should pick him up is delayed, he kills himself. So both are dead. It's over. A terrible, bitter irony as this story, and I'm sure that Juan Munoz was very pleased with this. And so he, I think he was really... Uh, obsessed by this story because he started creating sketches and studies in order to do an illustrated book. Anyway, the book never happened. The publisher and the artist had different ideas, but this idea got Juan Munoz into creating something. And we have all these studies, but at the end we have this work which uh, we are now looking at, which is more than a study, this is something we don't really know uh, how he would have used it, but it's something special. Indeed. And tell us about the the form of the work, because one of the most intriguing elements of it is it uses a found image alongside a drawn image. Well, Munoz had the idea to do drawings in the style of 19th century engravings and to have them engraved in copper and printed them alongside with the text. Well, this unfortunately didn't happen. And so he did line drawings. And these line drawings are very different from the studies which just flow out of his hands. These drawings pick up the style of late 19th century illustrations and he's copying a certain style. That is the interesting thing about it. It's not just Juan, his person, but he wants to speak in another language. He picks up another voice. And so he did several studies in that style, which he assumed. And I don't know if he copied properly also from models which he had or if he invented these models. At least the persons look very much like 19th century men in this instance. And in this last stage, which we are now looking at, he had these drawings combined or confronted with silk screen prints, contemporary photographs. The one which we're looking at, I think, is, is taken from Italian television. It's Rai Uno sign. It is something we don't know exactly what it is, a fire or something. And all these images which he chose and which he repeatedly used are showing images which we cannot exactly read or identify. They're strange. They signify Africa, the South, the colonies, this kind of world, or accidents or terrible things happening. And these are confronted with these very proper, elegant uh, 19th century illustration drawings. Did he in any way articulate a political conviction behind taking on this project? Because, of course, one of the things about this particular story by Conrad is it's seen as a condemnation of colonialism. It's a a very ironic attack on colonial aspirations, right? Uh, Absolutely. But Munoz was never politically outspoken. I think as an artist, it's better to leave things open, to keep things ambivalent, and I think it's so readable. I mean, the irony is there, the sarcasm is there, and the two explorers are now lying that in front of us. That's the bitter end of it. They're dead, and Finn, story's over. So right. they don't have to add anything to that. <laughs> there are two figures, and they're sort of lying horizontally across the drawing. In the first drawing, what is the implement next to the figure's hand? Because it doesn't look like a gun. It looks more like a pen. Yeah, it's a spoon. I think it's the <gasps> spoon of sugar they're fighting about. It's ah, just a bitch puts right. them to death in the end. So it's so ridiculous. You know, it's so funny that this should be end so bitterly. <laughs> Indeed it is. And as you say, the dress of the figures is very 19th century. The figure in the foreground has an almost comical moustache and sideburns, etc. And I noticed that he really thought about this image because there are several variations and he studies this image. If it's a found image, I don't know, but he repeats it and he uh, tries to find a real strong articulation of this. And that's what what he wants to do, to see us, an iconic image in the end. And will you be showing this alongside the other drawings from this sequence? We have 10 of this type of drawing, 10. And it's not a complete uh, narration of the, of the Conrad story. It's just 10 scenes of it. Maybe he would have added more. He left the project at some point and got on to other projects. But we've got 10. This is wonderful to see them all together for a long time. They haven't been out. Does this stand in... Juan Munoz's practice as a very distinctive group or does it lead to other things or does it emerge from other things because it seems to me very unique in its own way. It is unique but then uh, we have in this exhibition two more groups of that type of the late 90s and it shows that Munoz loved to work in series because he loved to pick up a, a subject which 
moved him, which really he was obsessed by, and he repeated it on and on and on. And so this is one example, and we have two more examples to which towards his, the end of his life. I wondered also about Goya, and of course, Goya for any Spanish artist, especially an artist with the, uh, the dark imagination of Juan Munoz, is going to loom large. To what extent did Juan directly refer to him or address his work in some way? He did not directly refer to him nor to another artist. I think it's just in his mind. I think Goya is just, as you say, he looms large for Spanish artists. And uh, the cruelty and the sarcasm of these drawings has a similar spirit, but they're far from the style of Goya, far from really referring directly to him. Maybe it was important not to be too direct as a Spanish artist, you know, with this great forerunner. Indeed. And you say he had a particular affinity or a particular interest in the 19th century literature. What do you think it was that attracted him the most to that? Because it's not necessarily an obvious thing. There are literary traditions in Spain and and in Europe more generally that might have been more obvious to us because we knew he was really fascinated, for instance, by Baroque architecture. So why not Baroque literature, etc.? So do you have an explanation for the 19th century? I mean, who's reading Baroque literature? (laughs) But I think our world is so much formed by the 19th century and 20th century art and literature as well. And also, I think, some artists who might have been also forerunners of Juan Munoz, somebody like Yanis Cunelis or Marcel Brodars, artists who always refer in their works to the 19th century, to the colonialism as well, or to the situation of Europe, or to the sea as an image and so on. I think these artists were already there and they created great models and he found maybe a way uh, looking at these artists and I knew he admired them to go on with his work. And uh, so that's the 19th century also for Walter Benjamin. I mean, we have so much read and heard about the 19th century, which forms our life. Well, thank you, Dieter, for telling us about this extraordinary drawing. Thank you, Ben, for inviting me. Thank you. Juan Muñoz Drawings 1982-2000 is at the Centro Botín in Santander, Spain from tomorrow, 25th of June, until the 16th of October. And that's it for this episode. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Amy Dawson, Henrietta Bentel and David Clack. And David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Kabir and Jane, Virginia and Dieter. And thank you for listening. See you next week for the last episode of this season. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.